All right, we're going to get started today with the 144th Psalm. This is a Psalm of David. Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle, my loving kindness in my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him or the son of man that you are mindful of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow down your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains, and they shall smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. Stretch out your hand from above. Rescue me and deliver me out of great waters. From the hand of foreigners whose mouth speaks lying words and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. On a harp of ten strings I will sing praises to you. The one who gives salvation to kings, who delivers David his servant from the deadly sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speaks lying words and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. That our sons may be plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as pillars sculptured in palace style, that our barns may be full, supplying all kinds of produce, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields, that our oxen may be well laden, that there be no breaking in or going out that there be no outcry in our streets. Happy are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is Lord. Oh, glorious Heavenly Father, and how happy we are to be in your presence and to share in your goodness. Thank you so much for this beautiful day. We've gotten great rain over the past few days and uh, no damage from the uh, passing storm. And then uh, just sunshine and uh, the plants are just reveling in it today. I know they are. And uh, the green and abundance of summer is here. And I thank you for each person here in attendance today, and I would ask that you would just bless them in their hearts and bless them in their souls and uh, just lead them by uh, uh, calm waters and uh, restore them for your name's sake. And Lord, we just want to give you praise. We want to give you glory. We want to give you honor. You've done so very much for us. And above all, you have given us your son, Jesus. He went to the cross and he paid the sin debt that we all bear and that none of us could ever pay. And then he came out of the grave proving that he is who he said he was, and he did what he said he would do. And we thank you for that because we know that we have the same promise of eternal life through his shed blood and through his, the power of his resurrection. And so it's in his glorious name that we pray and we thank you for all good things. Amen. Okay, today is uh, the 9th of June, and um, just a few announcements today, not many. Uh, in case anybody ever wants to get baptized, uh, water's back here, and I say that from time to time. Baptism is a, a picture of what we have accomplished in Jesus Christ by calling on him as Lord. We are then buried with him through uh, his death and raised to newness of life through the power of the resurrection. It's a picture of something that happens after we call on him. It's not something that uh, should be done before we call on him because it has no purpose. But uh, if anybody wants to be baptized at any time, we can go over there and do that. And um, today is our 77th Genesis sermon, and uh, it's been a long trek. And I got to tell you what, I'm, I uh, kind of regret that we have such a small crowd here today because it is, this is the most fascinating probably since Genesis uh, 23 to me. It, it is just absolutely astonishing what God has concealed in his word. And so for the people that didn't come today that you know, please send them an email uh, ask them to, to follow through with this one. I, I don't usually ask people to do that, but I, I've got to recommend this particular sermon. It really, uh, it, it's just to me an astonishing thing. 
and I hope it will bless you as well. And as uh, Dave noted a little while ago, this sermon's going to be a little longer, uh, not much longer, but a little longer than uh, normal. It might be, say, 48 minutes instead of 45. And so um, I'm not going to do a second psalm today. We'll do a quick New Testament reading and then, uh, uh, you know, get into the other things. Uh, one more announcement, actually a couple. Paul Stoll is uh, traveling with Elaine back this week, and we want to keep them in prayer for uh, safe travels. And um, uh, I know that there are a few people here that are really, really suffering with some physical problems right now um, uh, that aren't here today. But, uh, you know, just keep your, keep your fellow uh, uh, Christians in prayer. And, uh, you know, there's a million needs out there, and it's good to just kind of review those in your mind throughout the day and just uh, praise it comes to you for the needs of others. And uh, the one other announcement I have is that this past week, other than me going in and uh, tearing out the last of the things I can tear out, nothing has been done in the building. Um, I'm hoping that uh, uh, tomorrow we'll have the, co the concrete people come back out and cut out a space inside the building for some water lines that have to be put in. And once that's done, then the plumbers can come in and put in the plumbing. Then the inspectors have to come out. They have to approve that before anything else is done. So it's, it's a very long process, and it's going to take a lot longer than I had thought. I figured we would have been in there by now, and we're actually just getting started. So um, uh, be patient, and uh, it will be a nice place to meet. I assure you of that. Um, so uh, just I look forward to it, and I'm just as excited as I can be. And uh, I, I go to bed at night just thinking about... Uh, the, the fun things that are ahead as far as putting in these lights and putting in this carpet and, you know, all the kind of things that have to be done in order. And uh, it's, it's giving me something exciting to think about. But uh, that's all I have to report on the building today. Anyway, as I said, um, I want to do a New Testament reading, and uh, it's just a short one. It's not going to really add any time to our meeting today. Uh, it's the end of the Book of Romans. And uh, we've gone all the way through. We're in the last chapter, and I stopped last week at verse 16. This is 11 verses, uh, 17 through 27. Very short, very little commentary. And um, here we go. Uh, Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine you learned and avoid them. Important words here. And you know what? Uh, there's one thing that people love to do, and that's to point at everybody else and call them heretics. And uh, it, it, it's the most common thing within Christianity is to find fault in other people's doctrine. Um, a heresy is something that will actually keep somebody from being saved, okay? Uh, so to call somebody a heretic uh, over a minor doctrinal issue is not really appropriate. But there are doctrinal issues as well that we disagree on. And uh, we would want to try to uh, love each other through those variances. And uh, some people don't. And they cause divisions because of their petty uh, disagreements. And when they do that, Paul says to stay away from them. Get away from people like that that cause that type of thing because all they're doing is just tearing down the overall body of Christ, the overall church. Verse 18, for those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Well, unfortunately, and most of us know that, the, uh, the world is full of simple Christians. Most people do not pick this book up. They don't read it. Uh, they don't uh, want to know more than, yes, Jesus loves me and I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. And so they go to churches and they raise their hands and they, they worship him. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But there is something wrong with it when you don't have doctrine established in your own mind. Then anybody can come and tell you anything, whether it's right or not. Then you've got no grounds to disbelieve them. Uh, this is a complicated book. Uh, the message, the overall message is very simple. 
that, uh, you know, God loves us enough to do the things he did for us and that we can be saved through that. But it is a very complicated book, and it's something that I was talking with um, the guy I do mission work with yesterday, and we both agreed. Uh, it's kind of a cliche, but we both agreed to it, is that the more we learn from this book, the more we realize we don't know very much from this book. This is from the mind of God, and therefore we will infinitely, forever, be studying the mysteries that he has revealed in it. And today you're going to see a little piece of that, just a little touch of it. And uh, it, it, amazing things from the passage we're going to look at. Anyway, uh, verse 19, uh, For your obedience has become known to all, speaking to the Romans. Therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Good words from Paul, you know, just uh, be simple concerning evil. And uh, if we can follow that pattern and be wise in what is good, our lives will be a lot smoother. Um, I mentioned from time to time that I get lots of emails daily from people and they want advice on marriage and they want uh, advice on this and that. And, uh, uh, you know, I can't go beyond the Bible. I'm not a counselor where I can tell you how to fix your marriage, but I can tell you what God will not allow from your marriage. And most people don't want to hear that anymore. The easiest path is to say, I'm out of this marriage. And that's become socially acceptable. But that's not the path that God would ask for us. All right. If you've had a divorce, if you've had an abortion or something in the past, put it behind you and determine in the future to make the Bible and what it proclaims to you your standard for your life. All right. Um, verse 20, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Satan is real. The Bible, if the Bible is true, then Satan is a real entity and there's no way to get around that. And yes, the entire premise of the Bible or of Jesus coming can be summed up by John. In uh, 1 John, I think it's 3, 8, he says that uh, the reason that the Son of Man was manifest was to destroy the works of the devil. That is the primary reason why he came. And he will do that. God will crush Satan under your feet someday. But in the meantime, we are afflicted by this, this entity. And uh, I will tell you this, if you have called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and you are saved, then you cannot be demon-possessed. Don't ever let anybody tell you that. But you can be demon-afflicted. And that happens to people all the time. Satan is, he loves to destroy your life so that you have no testimony to hold in the presence of others. And when you get to that point where Satan is afflicting you, get in with other believers, talk to them. Don't isolate yourself, don't hide yourself from them, but uh, get to somebody or get back into church or get to a, a Bible meeting where you can get back into God's word. And the surest thing that you will do is when you resist the devil, he will flee from you. All right, so uh, I just lost something there. Um, verse uh, 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. So uh, Timothy is obviously the addressee of two of Paul's later epistles, and uh, some other people that are with him. They all greet the people in Rome. And then we get this sentence in uh, verse 22. It says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Paul was using a scribe. And uh, so this scribe would do all of the writing for Paul while he dictated to him. And as the Bible works, and as we're going to see today, God breathes through these people his words, and yet their style comes through. And you're going to, I'll talk about that a little bit. But there is a third person involved today, and that's Tertius, and he's the guy that did this. Now, what Paul normally does is at the end of his letters, he will make his own greeting and his own handwriting to authenticate it. And uh, that's described in some other epistles, and he uses exceptionally large letters uh, so people would know when Paul uh, was actually sending a letter. Uh, anyway, so kind of interesting. Verse 23 says, Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Cordus, a brother. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Well, that verse right there is the last verse of the Bible. That's what John says when he closes Revelation. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So it's something that uh, grace is, if you don't know exactly what grace is, grace is getting what you do not deserve. Your neighbor is a, a, a jerk and you're a nice person. It rains on him and it rains on you. Whether you both deserve it or whether one of you deserves it or whether neither of you deserves it, that's grace. Mercy is the opposite. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. We deserve, because of our sins against God, eternally being kept away from him or separated from him. It's called hell. That's what we deserve. But grace is getting what you do not deserve. And that is the abundant grace of God, is that he sent his son, Jesus, to redeem us from this fallen world. Anyway, uh, verse 25, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. All right, I'll stop there. Uh, when he says my gospel, it is not meaning that it is his gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he is a herald or one who proclaims it. Um, the uh, foundation, uh, according to, um, where is it? One of the places it says the foundation is the prophets and apostles. Okay, But later it says that Jesus is the foundation. Well, how can the two be true? It's because the prophets and apostles both proclaim the message of Jesus. He is the foundation. So when Paul says my gospel, he's not being uh, uh, boastful in that. He's saying this is my gospel and I'm speaking about Jesus. Okay. Um, and uh, then he mentions the mystery kept since the uh, world began. There are several mysteries that are in the New Testament. Uh, it's the Greek word mysterion. And basically what it is is that there are things that were hidden in the past that are now revealed. And uh, one of them, for example, was the church. Jesus never spoke to the church. He spoke to people under the law, and he was doing it in fulfillment of the law. The words that Jesus speaks are not applicable to the church. They're applicable to the kingdom age, which is future to us now. The church is a mystery that is revealed by Paul's hand. And that's very clearly laid out in the pages of the Bible. We've discussed that in past sermons. Paul's letters are the letters which are doctrine for the church. That doesn't mean that we don't read Jesus' words and we don't apply them to our life, but they are applicable in a different way and in different uh, circumstances, okay? Paul's letters are doctrine for the church, in other words. Um, but now made manifest that mystery that he just mentioned, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations. Well, we're going to see this today. The prophetic scriptures are speaking of something Again and again, you've seen these patterns and these pictures of things that are being revealed or concealed are revealed in the New Testament. And we're going to see that again today, how the prophetic scriptures actually point to other things, especially the book of Genesis and parts of the book of Exodus. They're almost all pictures, stories telling us of other things. And God is trying to wake us up and to get us to understand this. Um, made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. What a wonderful book the book of uh, Romans is. And uh, depending on the length of the sermon next week, we'll uh, get into our next book, which is the book of uh, 1 Corinthians and then um, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. And we'll be done with the New Testament. And we'll start it again as we're going through these sermons. But uh, Romans is, is called the Constitution of Christianity for a reason. It establishes the doctrine and everything after that book is built upon it. And we see how he weaves these letters together so beautifully, all directly from the mind of God. And as I said, we're going to see a little bit of that today. So uh, uh, stay tuned for that. And um, 
We'll go ahead and get into uh, our next thing, which I do every single week, and uh, it's one of my favorite things to do is uh, this day in history, and try sometimes to take these and tie them into a biblical theme. Sometimes you can't, but it's still kind of fun to see what happened in history so we have a, a reference point for what will happen in the future. Because the Bible tells us that which has been will be again, that which has been done will be done again, and there is nothing new under the sun. Things happen in a cyclical pattern, and uh, many of the things that we've seen in the past occur again. So we can learn from that. Um, anyway, this day in history is 9 June, and uh, the first point is in 1534, a guy named Jacques Cartier became the first to sail into the river that he named, anybody? Jacques Cartier? The St. Lawrence River. And if you know that, it goes out to the sea, but it goes all the way up through the five Great Lakes. And that is one of the main riverways uh, which establishes America as a great nation on Earth. Without it, we would not have the uh, resources and capability that we did in order to be established as the nation we are. It's the same as the Mississippi. It's a very important uh, waterway. A lot of shipping goes through there, a lot of commerce and trade. And uh, God's hand is upon the geography of the earth. We've seen that a million times. How the geography of the earth and the elements and the, uh, the, the goods that are in the ground, such as oil, are being used by God to direct history. And that is certainly one of the issues, is uh, uh, the waterways in America. How abundantly blessed we are. Now, here's another question. This just came to mind. I'm going to ask it because uh, I can. Um, why? What state in the United States has the largest number of class one rivers? That means the largest rivers of all. The, what state in the United States has the largest number of class one rivers? Florida. Absolutely. He's right. Florida, and it, 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 believe it or not, you would think it'd be like Wyoming or something. You know, I don't know. You'd think of some other state. Florida has more class one rivers than any other in the United States of America. The volume of the rivers that leaves here and is the size of the rivers determined by the amount of volume that goes out of it. And it's Florida. I never would have never would have imagined that when I first heard it. And so that's a little squiggle for your brain that you can use in your uh, Jeopardy challenge with other people. Um, Seventeen ninety. John Barry copyrighted the Philadelphia Spelling Book. And guess what? It was the first American book to be copyrighted. So it was called the Philadelphia Spelling Book. Um, and then on this day in 1860, which was many years later, 70 years later, so we've got a little gap in our American history, the book Mala Esca, The Indian Wife of the White Hunter by Ann Stevens went on sale for one dime, and it became the first of the dime novels. That was the very first dime novel, and it was uh, uh, released this day, 9 uh, June in 1860. And then in 1931 on this day, a guy named Robert H. Goddard patented something. Does anybody know what Goddard is famous for? Rocketry, rocketry, thank you, there you go. He patented a uh, rocket fuel aircraft design, but he is the father of modern rocketry, Robert Goddard. There's one other person, if uh, you know your uh, rocket history, would be Werner von Braun, who was uh, with the Nazis in Germany. His heart was to send people out into space and to the moon, but because of his knowledge, uh, they hired him to work on the V-1 and V-2 rocket programs. But when they lost the war, we brought him over to America. And he became, along with Robert Goddard, the two most famous people in modern rocketry, um, He's the one actually got our Saturn rockets up into the atmosphere and got us to the moon. So uh, that was all begun, basically, though, by this guy, Rod Robert Goddard. He was a real pioneer of rocketry. Um, 1934, Donald Duck 
Donald Duck made his debut in Silly Symphony's cartoon, The Little Wise, The Wise Little Hen. So uh, that was a long time ago. Donald Duck is an old guy right now. Um, and then a couple years later, this is six years later in 1940, Norway surrendered to the Nazis during World War II. So the uh, time marches on and nations were falling and it looked like there was going to be a thousand year uh, Reich on the earth and it lasted a couple years and that was the end of that. But uh, there really will be a thousand year reign someday and that's told in the Bible. It's called the millennial reign of Christ when he returns and he will return to Israel and he will dwell in Israel and he will rule from Jerusalem. The Bible assures us of that, both testaments of the Bible. And uh, that's coming soon, I hope, to a dispensation near you. So. Uh, We'll see. I, I would just hope that uh, things don't continue on the way they are now because, uh, you know, I mean, it's a beautiful world, but we got a lot of problems in it as well. Uh, let's see here. In 1943, something that I just can't stand is the withholding tax on payrolls was authorized by the Congress. Now, obviously, this was a wartime measure, uh, but uh, once a tax is in instituted, it stays forever. And uh, people think at the end of the year, oh, gosh, I got this big amount of money from the government today. They're not thinking that the government took their money that they earned and they've been making interest on it for the past, you know, 11 months or 10 months or however. That's your money. And they just arbitrarily passed a law that they're going to do this. Yes, for a wartime effort, but it's persisted until this day. Any tax that gets introduced invariably stays. It, it, they just are a, a, a giant beast that cannot get enough of itself. And that's what happens with governments. And uh, that was eventually the downfall of the Roman Empire was the, the same path that we're taking right now. But anyway, it was 1943. And then two years later, on this day, 9 June, uh, Japanese Premier Kantaro Suzuki declared that Japan would fight to the last rather than accept unconditional surrender. And the reason why he made that declaration is because we offered him unconditional surrender. We had hemmed them in completely coming in from the east. And uh, we were also working uh, in the China area against them. And uh, we had already come into Okinawa. Okinawa was uh, uh, now we could just actually take fighter planes, much less bombers. And, and uh, we'd uh, be able to just completely control the air over uh, Japan. And we offered them an out. And they said, no, we will fight to the very last person. And I spent six years in Japan. I'm married to a Japanese. And I know the mindset. Millions, millions of people would have perished. Millions. It would have been hundreds of thousands of Americans at best and millions of Japanese. Men, women, and children would have gone to their graves. And we uh, had a choice. We had a, a, a bomb that was developed and we could have used it or we could not have used it. It saved lives. Uh, the argument is, why didn't we drop it on a uh, empty island as a demonstration? It would not have worked. It would not have worked. They would have claimed that it was done by a whole bombing raid that night and it would have just, it, it, they, they would. They were so blind with power in the government that it would not have worked. And so right or wrong, I'm not one to judge history about nuclear weapons when it saved many, many lives. Um, so uh, however you feel about that particular issue, I am in support of what America did on that occasion. And uh, we've been very restrained with our nuclear weapons since then. And uh, it's been a testament to the fact that we've been willing to uh, not use them uh, again. Anyway, uh, that was 1945, and then uh, 14 years later, talking about nuclear weapons, the first ballistic nuclear submarine uh, was commissioned and uh, launched on this day. And does anybody know what the name of it was? No, the USS George Washington. And we also have a, a carrier called the George Washington. So uh, that was uh, 
a few I years later. I know that my father was on board. Oh, there you go. Oh, good. All right. The USS George Washington, this day in 1959. And then 1980. Oh, you know, I always liked this guy. Richard Pryor was severely burned by a freebase mixture that exploded. He was hospitalized for more than two months. And, uh, you know, that's the consequences of drugs. If you were going to let something control your life instead of letting the Lord take over, you are going to suffer the consequences of it. Whether it's drugs or whether it's sexual addiction or whether whatever it is, there's always something that will harm your relationship with God and it will also adversely affect your health and your well-being. So, uh, you know, uh, sorry that happened to him, but it was a lesson for others. And I don't even know if people even freebase anymore. I didn't know what it was, but I haven't heard that term since I typed this in on Monday. So uh, it's been probably 20 years or more since I heard that term. I know nowadays they have crystal meth and all these other things, but but uh, whatever it is, it's destructive. Keep your eyes on what is good and focus your life on what is noble and stay away from those things. Um, uh, 1986, uh, this is in result to uh, something that happened uh, only two times in my uh, service. I was in the service for nine years, four months and 15 days, and. Uh, three in Malaysia and six in Japan. And my uh, six years in Japan, I, I openly wept two times. And the first was the uh, Challenger exploded. And uh, the second time was when Ronald Reagan, who was the only president I had served under, left office. And uh, anyway, on this day in uh, 9 June of uh, 1986, the Challenger disaster report from the Rogers Commission was released. And it explained that the spacecraft blew up as a result of a failure in a solid rocket booster joint. And, uh, you know, they had gotten all the pieces together. They laid them out in a, uh, uh, a hangar. They had all of the cameras, these magnificent cameras that uh, NASA has, and they were able to identify this. And now they no longer allow uh, space shuttles or anything to take off. I think it's 26 degrees. It might be 28 degrees. There's a certain temperature where things get brittle. And uh, so uh, uh, that was what caused that, was the cold weather, the brittleness of this particular solid rocket booster joint. Um, in 2000, on this day, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to repeal gift and estate taxes. Okay, well, of course, we still have gift and estate taxes. As I said, these are showy things the government does, and it never pans out. Either the Senate blocks it or the president uh, vetoes it, but... Uh, the bill called for the taxes to be phased out over 10 years. I remember the debate personally. Uh, one of the guys stood up and he said, no taxation without respiration, meaning that when you die, why should your estate be taxed? This is something that people have earned. Uh, the government has already taxed it. And most of the estate taxes affect the producers in this country because people have a business and say it's worth $2 million. He's earned it, but the guy may only make $70,000 a year. But the business has inventory coming in. It has inventory going out. It has the building itself, which has value. Then, of course, they add in your home. They add in your car. They add in, you know, everything that you own. And that's all put into this big total. And the government says we're taking 55% of everything over this. Well, you can't get to that 55% without selling the entire lot. And so that affects these people that have worked hard all their life and that actually produce. And they lose, the children lose what has been earned. And so now you have that money being taken and squandered away by the government. That's how the estate taxes work. The uh, uh, gift taxes say that you can give up to a certain amount of money uh, without that being taxed. I can give any one of you 
$11,000 right now and there's no tax. If I give $11,001, I pay the tax on the $1. Um, so that's a, an out. It's a little way of getting rid of your estate early. But that doesn't get rid of very much unless you have a thousand children. You know, I mean, you just have to really give away a lot. Um, the reason why I say it doesn't affect the very wealthy people is because the very wealthy people have everything already protected in things that are not taxable. And that includes the people that wrote the laws. They know where they can get away with these things, but it's expensive to hire lawyers and all that to do that. So this is really a punitive tax against the people that work hard. And so I'm opposed to it. But that's uh, 2000 and that's the end of this day in history, 9 June. So uh, what I'll do now is let me pick up this piece of paper. Maybe I'll be able to edit that out of the, uh, out of the video and maybe not, but um, we'll go ahead and we'll read our text for today. Now I'd like you to pay attention as I'm reading this and try to see what God is telling us because I assure you that I am so excited about what, what is hidden in these 13 verses. It is astonishing. This is um, Genesis 31 verses 43 through 55. All right, um, we're gonna start in 43. It says, and Laban answered and said, now if you haven't been here at these previous sermons, you're not gonna know what I'm talking about because you don't know who the people represent. But if you've been here through all of these sermons, you know who Leah represents, who Rachel represents, who Laban represents, who Jacob represents, it will become as crystal clear as can be. That doesn't mean you won't know by the end of the sermon what I'm talking about, but you won't know now what I'm talking about. Okay, verse 43 again. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, these daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. But when, what can I do the, uh, this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have born? Now therefore come, let us make a covenant, you and I. Let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Then Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there on the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sadahutha, but Jacob called it Galid. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name was called Galid. Also Mizpah, because he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. If you afflict my daughters, or if you take other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, here is this heap and here is this pillar which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond this heap to you and you will not pass beyond this heap to me, uh, this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. And early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. In the 13th century, there is a Christian philosopher named Thomas Aquinas. He wrote something called the Summa Theologica. It's one of the greatest works ever on the many facets of the doctrines of the Bible and the workings of God and the creation of man, of divine government and other things. I've got a copy of it and it is astonishing. It's so complicated that I can read a paragraph and not understand anything except what the individual words mean at times. He's a very intelligent man. Each one of his categories is subdivided into an astonishing ray of wisdom and logic. One might think that the first premise that Aquinas would have argued over would be God. His existence, his nature, his attributes, these type of things. 
the Bible starts with creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but from the premise that it is God who created. In the beginning, God. You'd think that Aquinas would do the same, but he looked elsewhere to establish his arguments. Believe it or not, he started with the nature and domain of sacred doctrine. In other words, he started with the Bible. Now, why would he do this? The answer is that until the nature and the validity of the Bible can be determined, then all the philosophy, all of the logic, and all of the reason in the world about God is completely irrelevant. And I'm going to give you an example. Muslims have what they call the Quran. And there are, yes, Muslim philosophers. Jews hold to their uh, writings, which are the Gemara and the Mishnah, all right, which is the Talmud. And yes, there are Jewish philosophers. And you have the Bhagavad Gita. You've got the writings of Lao Tse. And you've got, uh, you know, Buddhist and Hindu philosophers. And the problem with this is that if you have an incorrect text and understanding of God, then you will naturally, your philosophical, reason, philosophical reasonings of God will be from a faulty premise. And therefore, you will come to faulty conclusions. So this is why Thomas Aquinas started with the Bible as his first uh, doctrine in order to establish all the other doctrines of Christian philosophy. Without God's word, there can be no true understanding of our relationship with him. This is what Thomas Aquinas said here. He said that because man is directed to God as an end that surpasses the grasp of his reason, okay? In other words, we're directed to God, but we can't grasp him. He's beyond our comprehension to grasp. And because of this, he said, the end must first be known by men who are to direct their thoughts and their actions to the end. In other words, God must tell us what he is doing. We know there's a problem in the world. When I see somebody commit sin, I know that we are in a fallen world. I see death around me. And the first thing that even an atheist says when their wife or child dies is, oh God, because we know that there is a God in our hearts and we know that there's a disconnect between us and him. And so he's saying that we need to have that end must be known so that we can direct our thoughts and our actions to that end. Now he continues, hence it was necessary for the salvation of man. Yes, we know we need to be saved. Necessary for the salvation of man that certain truths which exceed human reason should be made known to him, meaning man, by divine revelation. In other words, God has to tell us, I'm going to do this thing in human history and you will work towards this end that I have given you as I'm working through it as well in human history. That salvific effort ultimately is Jesus Christ and all of it points to him. Every word of the Bible points to him. And that's what Aquinas is saying. We have to understand the end before we can understand this God that we need to contemplate and to, to reason through all of these precepts about him or our reasonings will be wrong. And if you don't understand that, go back and watch my Genesis 1-1 sermon and I defend why other religions are wrong and how you can know. And all it takes is thinking it through. But if you start with presuppositions, you will never think it through properly, okay? Aquinas went on through 10 articles of the nature of sacred scripture before he continued on with the rest of the Summa. God's word is the single most important physical object on planet Earth. Without it, we cannot know Jesus. And without Jesus, we cannot be saved. And yet we ignore this book watch TV. Today we're going to review a passage which actually reveals God's intent to give us a Bible and he will even give us clues in it that show us about the nature and the structure of the Bible that he's going to give. 
Now, I read those verses earlier. Did any of you see that in there? Because that's what God wants us to see today. It's astonishing. And it will show that God also is very carefully watching over his word. Our text verse for today comes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1. This is the commission or the call of Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. God spoke his word to us through his prophets and his apostles, and in this word are promises, blessings, curses, and assurances. If one, and I mean this sincerely, if one aspect of his word fails, then God has failed. The sacredness and reliability of this word is tied directly to his holiness and his truthfulness. And so, may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is a short one. It's called Laban's Loss. In the previous few sermons, we saw Jacob, by God's direction, determined to leave the land uh, that he's in and head back to the land of Canaan. He left secretly, and when his uncle found out, his uncle Laban, in turn, chased after him and finally caught up with him. On the night before they met, God appeared to him, meaning Laban, and told him that he was to do nothing harmful to Jacob. The next day, Laban met Jacob, searched his tents for household idols that were stolen from him, and then Jacob defended his actions, including his innocence concerning these stolen idols. This is where we're going to start today. Verse 43, And Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. Jacob has fully defended himself against Laban, and now Laban, without admitting any guilt or any wrongdoing toward Jacob, makes a great and boastful claim that everything that is in Jacob's possession is actually derived from him. He's acting in a way which will allow him to seem generous in not insisting on keeping all of it for himself, and instead he's going to be gracious by giving Jacob all of this stuff to take back to Canaan with him. Verse 43 continues, But what can I do this day to these my daughters and to their children whom they have borne? Laban has claimed that everything Jacob has now came from his wealth, and he's generous in allowing him to keep it. His reason is that he simply couldn't find it in his heart to deprive his departing family of their well-being. His own daughters, though, if you remember, told Jacob before they left that Laban had treated them as strangers all along. But suddenly, his claim is that the, these children are so near and dear to him. And I will give you a life application on that, is that we have family members, and we tend to neglect the ones that we love the most. We neglect them the most. And it's not intentional. It's just that we assume that they're always there. And so we don't spend a lot of time with our family members. We don't go visiting our family members. We have friends that we're very close to, and you know we fail to call them on the telephone and say hi once in a while. And all of a sudden, they're gone. Maybe they've moved out of the house because they've grown up, or maybe they've died. And you will live with that regret. And this guy Laban has given away his daughters, and for 20 years, they've lived right there with him, right there with him, and he's neglected them. And now they are going to be gone forever. And all of the children that were born to Jacob during this time that he neglected are going to be gone forever. And this is something that we need to remind ourselves. And sometimes I will post this. I post a uh, sunrise photo on uh, uh, Facebook every single day. And I don't do it on my own wall, but I post it on another page. And I tell people from time to time, it's the beginning of the month. Remember to call the friend that you meant to call last month because you don't know if you're going to be talking to him ever again. 
Try to remember these things and love the people around you now. Laban learned his lesson and he has got a lifetime without ever seeing any of them again. So please keep that as a, just a little life application for you. Now we need to remember though that Laban is in the presence of his own family members and they are going to return with him. And so he's trying to make himself look good in their eyes and to diminish Jacob's standing at the same time. So that's why this is coming about. Verse 44, now therefore come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. The separation is final and Laban does realize that. Jacob isn't coming back and everything is going with him. But just like six years earlier, Laban realized that God was with Jacob. In the past, he asked Jacob to stay and work for him and it has become completely evident. Just as he saw six years ago, he knows it still. Jacob is blessed. God has made him fruitful, he's made him powerful, and he's his protector. And if this is so, and because Laban has actually mistreated Jacob time and time again, as we've seen, it's a fear of Laban's that Jacob made determined to come back someday and take revenge on him for his bad treatment. And because of this, he asks for a covenant between the two. The covenant will be, as he says, a witness between them. If Jacob agrees, it's implied that all of the past quarrels are gonna be forgotten and anything which is misplaced between them will be overlooked. Instead, there's going to be an agreement of peace and good intention, which will stand as a testimony between these seemingly warring parties, especially because it's going to be in the presence of God and of these witnesses. This covenant, I gotta tell you what, is so important that God determined to record it by Moses' hand several hundred years later as a witness forever, okay? Our second thought today is God is witness. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Now let me ask you a question. Who set up the stone? I just said it. Jacob. So Jacob took a stone and set up as a pillar. Now pay attention to that because we're going to get to something later that may seem confusing. In the verses which just preceded Jacob's departure from the land of Canaan, remember he was in Bethel and he had a dream and he set up a pillar afterward. This was on the night after he had his dream concerning the ladder, which involved a promise of Jacob's protection. Now in these verses right here, which precede his return to Canaan, he sets up another pillar. This is coming on the night after Laban had a dream concerning Jacob's protection. The symbolism should not be missed. The last time we heard of Jacob before he left Canaan, he had a dream of his protection, he was told that, and then he set up a pillar, and then he left the land, and now he is getting ready to go back into the land, and the night before, another dream of a person that he needed protection from. God is showing us this for a very specific reason. God promised protection to Jacob, and it came even in the form of a dream to rebuke his enemy Laban. In the same way, God has promised that he will preserve the people of Israel who have descended from Jacob. This preservation of them, whether they deserve it or not, is based on his faithfulness and his ability to keep his word. People that don't understand this can never understand the immense wonder which has occurred in this group of people throughout the ages. He has taken care of them despite themselves and despite all of the people who have come against them and continue to come against them, to speak ill of them and to attempt to wipe them out. The book of Esther details Haman's desire to destroy every Jew on earth, okay? If that happened, God's word would have failed. Hitler determined to destroy every Jew on earth. Once again, the same thing. And whether we like it or not, in 622 AD, a man named uh, Muhammad was born and he eventually wrote a book called the Quran. And in that book, it says that in, some, in the future days, 
the rocks, there'll be a Jew hiding behind that rock and the rock will cry out, oh Jew, or come behind me. Oh, there is a Jew behind me, come and slay this Jew. It is their determined intention to kill every Jew on earth. So either that's gonna prove that the Quran is false or the Bible is false, but both cannot be true. And this is their determined intention is to kill every Jew on earth. God's hand though is on these people, just as his hand is on the people of the church during this time of grace and blessing, which we call the church age. Jacob's pillar is a testament to God's faithfulness. It also symbolizes Jacob's willingness to agree to Laban's proposed covenant. Verse 46, then Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones. Who said to gather stones? Jacob, all right, pay attention to this. And they took stones and made a heap and they ate there on the heap. In addition to the pillar, Jacob tells the people gathered to make a heap. The Hebrew word is gal, and it would have been a circular heap, which will serve two purposes. The, fir the first purpose is that it'll be a round table that they can use for dining. And the second is that it will remain there as an altar and a testimony to this covenant that's being made right here. A meal is where the details in life are sorted out. All of life's problems are handled during meals. It is also where foes become friends and where agreements are made. A meal is where we have to stop from our own labors and reflect on whatever the situation is at hand. I watched an account, a real life account of World War II a couple days ago. There were some British commandos that were hemmed in a building. It was at the, uh, the Battle of the Arnhem, the bridge over Arnhem. And these guys were fighting and somebody was over there, literally bullets flying right by him, hitting the walls next to him and he's cooking. And then one of the guys is out there shooting. The guy brings him over some food. And while he's shooting, he stops and he eats. And he's sorting out his life's problems, eating and fighting at the same time. It was the most astonishing thing I'd ever seen in my life. That literally there were bombs going off right inside. Things were being thrown in. They'd throw them right back out and you'd hear an explosion. And here they're having a meal. They're sorting out life's problems during this. Anyway, the, uh, by taking time to sit and eat this meal, these people here in this account are gonna be able to sort out the problems which have arisen from the past and they're gonna be able to resolve them for the future. A meal is also, believe it or not, where we meet with the Lord and where we proclaim his death until he comes again. It is where we leave aside our past each week and it's where we renew our determination for the future. And that's what we're gonna be doing in a little while when we take communion. Verse 47, Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. This is the very first time in the pages of the Bible that a language other than Hebrew is used. Laban's name of this round heap is Jagar Sadahutha, which is an Aramaic. It's not a Hebrew word. In all, there are gonna be about 250 verses which contain Aramaic in the Bible out of about 31,000 verses. Most of the Aramaic is gonna be found in Nehemiah and Daniel, but there are gonna be words and sentences scattered throughout the entire Bible. For example, and this is astonishing to me, if you read the book of Jeremiah, you've got this text that's going and all of a sudden one sentence, just right in the middle of a, a, a paragraph is in Aramaic. And then it switches right back to Hebrew. Everything else in the book of Jeremiah is in Hebrew except that one sentence. And it's not really an offset sentence. There are even gonna be a few times in the New Testament where the Greek, the New Testament is written in Greek, is citing Aramaic, not Hebrew words. What this verse here that we're looking at now does is it shows us that the language of the land, the same land which Abraham came from was Aramaic. It is the language that Rebekah, who is Jacob's mother, would have spoken. Hebrew then is the la language of the land of Canaan, 
which Abraham would have learned and would have adapted after moving there. Both these languages are very similar, but they evolved differently over the years. Jacob calls this mound Galid, which means the same thing in Hebrew as Jagar Sahodutha does in Aramaic. They both mean heap of witness. And by naming this mound in their own languages, it was a way of confirming that this covenant applied not only to them, but to their posterity after them. Verse 48, and Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name was called Galid. The great Bible scholar, Adam Clark, notes the irregular division of this verse and the next one. And it is, it's irregular. If you read the two verses, you think, why is it broken up the way it is? He disagrees with this particular verse division. And so, for a little diversion for you, and I'm going to tie it in with what I'm going to talk about. Don't, don't think I'm just diverting for the sake of diverting. But for a little diversion, I'm going to give you my thoughts on Bible verse divisions. Now, from time to things, things are divided in the Bible in very odd places. As I said, there's no doubt about that. One chapter in the book of Acts ends on a semicolon. There are other irregularities in how things appear to be arranged or divided in the Bible. The first words compiled in the Bible happened about 3,500 years ago when a guy named Moses walked up Mount Sinai and he received the Torah, which are the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five and took, you have five books, okay? After that, about 40 people combined were used of God to write portions of his word. Three languages were used as well, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The final book to be received was about 1,600 years later in the year 100 AD when a guy named John penned the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos. Other than a few books, all of them were written by Hebrew people. The Hebrew Bible, that means the Bible that Jewish people use today, has the same books as the books of the Christian Bible, but they're arranged differently. If you pick up a Hebrew Bible, you're not going to know where things are because it's a different arrangement. Nobody's really sure why the Christians changed it, but God, God is. He knows why, and I'm going to show you why today. It wasn't around until AD 350 that the books of the New Testament, so 250 years after John penned Revelation, they were finally agreed on, okay? So this couldn't have man's hands in it. It was something that these were written, they didn't know it was going to be in the Bible, and then 250 years later, they decide on which books are canon, and then they compile them and they arrange them at that time. Two people in the 13th century, which is another thousand years later, took time to divide the Bible into chapters. One was a guy named Archbishop Stephen Langdon. The other was a guy named Cardinal Hugo de Santo Caro. The divisions that Langdon made are the ones that we use today. Then in 1551, which is a full 200 years after that, Robert Stephanus divided the New Testament into individual verses, and they are the verses that we use today, and the very first time that they were published as a Bible was in the Geneva Bible of 1560. Now, although this might seem like an unnecessary history lesson, the structure of the Bible, the arrangement of the books, the chapter divisions, and yes, even the verse divisions as we know them now show a wisdom which transcends the 3,000 years, the 40 human authors, the other people of God, the three languages that are used in the Bible, and the compiling and the structure and the publication of this modern Bible. There's a wisdom that is astonishing in it. And if you sat in some of my classes, I've showed you patterns based on what I'm gonna show you today. And it's unmistakable that God's hand is all over this book. When we read these seemingly odd points of division, such as in the verse that we're looking at right now, which Adam Clark disagrees with, we should be careful not to find fault 
without searching for the patterns which are so beautifully revealed in what is given. I tell you this because, as I said, I believe that these, diver these divisions, even to the verse divisions, are divinely inspired by God. Patterns which are revealed in them through study show 100% that this is true. God's hand, his fingerprints are very clearly evident in his word. Remember this and use care when you search its wonders and its mysteries. Anyway, Laban here, he acknowledges that the heap that they ate at is a witness to the two parties. The Bible then goes on to say, therefore its name was called Galid. Now we read these things in English and we say, well, why therefore? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Unless you understand the original languages, you don't know why the therefore is what it's there for. The meaning isn't evident in English, but the Hebrew word gal means witness, and the word ed, which comes from the verb ud, means to repeat or to return. Basically, it's the idea of to make uh, to somebody the second emotion. So if you know what I'm starting to get at, kind of keep that in mind, seconding emotion. Therefore, the two words, gal and ed, are combined to say galit, heap of witness. It's a heap of witness. Verse 49, also mizpah, because he said, may the Lord, meaning Jehovah, Lord in this verse is Jehovah, watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. Mizpah means watchtower. And if the name heap of witness is implying a covenant between the two, then the name Mizpah is implying that the Lord, Jehovah, is the one who is watching over this covenant. He would be there to one standing as a judge over any transgressions of this agreement. Just as we saw in the covenant between Abraham and Abimelech, which was many years in the distant past and many sermons ago for us, all right? Despite the age of these covenants that we're looking at, which are 4,000 years ago, boundaries have been formed around the land and between the peoples of these surrounding lands. And God continues to monitor what man has long ago forgotten. He stands at the watchtower, ensuring that these ancient covenants are met. This book, the Bible is a testament to his care about these type of things. Verse 50, if you afflict my daughters, or if you take other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Laban is determined to set the parameters for the protection of his daughters as a part of this covenant. He's not allowing any addition to Jacob's family in the form of wives. If you remember what Leah and Rachel picture from a previous sermon, then you're starting to see the pattern here, I hope. If you're not, I will explain it. I'll, just a few more minutes. Jacob is bound to the two wives, and God is a witness concerning this. In this verse, it says, even though no man is with us. This doesn't mean that they went off alone to make this agreement, okay? I want you to get that clear. Instead, it's speaking of the future when no one is there to observe what either is doing. In that time, God is still going to be watching. And I assure you, what this is alluding to is as important of a precept as any contained in the Bible. God is watching it, and he will hold offending parties to account. Go back to Thomas Aquinas, the nature and domain of sacred doctrine. This is all pointing to that in this verse right here. Our third thought today, a sacrifice on the mountain. Verse 51, then Laban said to Jacob, here is the heap and here is this pillar which I have placed between you and me. Who just claimed that he put up the pillar in the heap? Laban. Laban said to Jacob, here is this heap and here is this pillar which I have set up and placed between you and me. Curiously, Laban notes the heap and the pillar as if he had set them up. Earlier, it said that Jacob was the one who set up the pillar, and it was Jacob who directed the heap to be made 
and yet Laban claims that they were by him. Why would this be in the Bible? Remember who Laban pictures. Remember who his daughters picture, and then maybe you're starting to see why he's claiming the right to having placed that there. As always, these pictures are being given, not as a one-for-one -one comparison, but they're designed to show us how things will come about in the future. This account between Jacob and Laban really happened. There's no doubt about it. And so God has shown it to us for his reasons. Keep searching what you already know and it's going to become clear. The heaps in the pillar were erected by Laban's consent, although they were directed originally by Jacob. Verse 52, this heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond this heap to you and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. He had something in there for Jacob that he doesn't have for himself. Keep thinking about it. The heap and the pillar witness to the peace between the two parties. There will be harmony between them as long as they don't pass beyond the boundaries which have been set in order to cause harm. If they are breached, then the account is to be judiciously and righteously settled as a violation of this covenant. Verse 53, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. That's Laban speaking. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible Commentary notes this about this verse. It says, it is observable that there was a marked difference in the religious sentiments of the two, meaning Laban and Jacob. Laban spake of the God of Abraham and Nahor, their common ancestors. But Jacob, knowing that idolatry had crept in among that branch of the family, swore by the fear of his father Isaac. They who have one God should have one heart. They who are agreed in religion should endeavor to agree in everything else. In other words, Laban is still worshiping the God of his fathers. Abraham's is Nahor, Abraham is Nahor's brother and their father is Terah. The problem with Laban's words here is that in all of their lives, all three of them, idolatry had crept in. This is seen in Joshua chapter 24, verse two. Here's what it says. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times and they served other gods. Laban is confused about who God is and how to serve him. Remember, he had household idols in his home and yet he referred to the Lord Jehovah during the covenant. So he's got this confusion going on inside of him. And so to stave off any hint of idolatry at all, Jacob swears by the same God, but he uses the term, the fear of his father, Isaac. Isaac is still alive and he walks in fear of his God. The God that he serves is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And this is the same sentiment that Jesus gives us in Matthew 22. He was questioned about a matter concerning the resurrection and Jesus corrected his listeners by saying this, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jacob is doing exactly the same thing right now for Laban. God is alive and he is to be feared, not placed as a God of the dead along with a bunch of household idols. His word, our God, is from everlasting to everlasting, and his eyes watch over his word, and they watch over his covenants and the things that it contains, and he does it for all time. If all of this seems trivial, I can absolutely assure you that it is, it, it is not, all right? Verse 54, then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. 
and they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. The confirmation of the government is made by a sacrifice on the mountain and by eating bread. Is this anything you've read anywhere else in the Bible, maybe? Now, here's a question. Are you reading your Bible? Are you trying to take what you know right now and weave it together? If so, I, I know, even if you can't figure out where we're going with this, I know that the Lord is smiling on your efforts for trying to figure his word out. If not, then my question to you is, why not? Has God put these stories in here so that we can read them and forget them? Or are they here to tell us about things that are irrelevant to anything except the lives of Laban and Jacob? Never, 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 never stop asking the word to speak back to you. It is alive and it is active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword and it will awaken your soul if you will simply let it. Verse 55, and early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. It can be inferred from what God said to Laban on the night before he met up with Jacob that he intended to do harm to him and to his family. At a minimum, he came with the intent to call down curses on Jacob, which would have in turn been considered a curse on the family as well. But now he kisses his family and he blesses them. Just as God vowed to Abraham and which passed on to Isaac and eventually passed on to Jacob, we read these words from Genesis chapter 12. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. God turned the curse into a blessing and so we can assume that when Laban departed and went to his place, he was blessed for the blessing he gave. Now that we've looked at the surface of this story, the historical and the cultural aspects of what happened, we need to ask ourselves, why? Why is this story here? What is it that God wants us to see? And the answer is, as always, Jesus. Here's the light that I believe God wants you to see in this particular passage. Laban pictures a man of the world. We've seen this consistently through all of the time we've dealt with Laban. Jacob pictures the Lord. Laban came to Jacob and claimed that the daughters, the family, and the flock were his. Remember, Leah pictures the law, Old Testament law, and Rachel pictures grace found in the New Testament. We've seen this time and time again as clearly as it could be. The flock is the church. Remember, he built a flock and that pictured the church. And the children of Jacob picture the people of Israel, the children of Israel. Laban is making a claim to them based on the fact that they all came from him. And this is true, they did. In the same way, the law was penned by Moses, even though it was given under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what Jeremiah wrote came from Jeremiah. It bears his unique style and wording. The same is true with the New Testament. When we read Paul, we can tell his style, and yet it bears the unique mark of God. There's no doubt about it. The things Laban said came from him really did, even though they are also Jacob's. The word of God, the church, and the people of Israel all came through man, and yet they came through God. I'm going to explain this in a way that you can understand. If you have, I, when I was in the uh, 1980s, I was in junior high school and then in high school, and there was a guy that played the guitar, and it didn't matter what he played, you knew it was him playing. His name was Eddie Van Halen. If you hear him play, you will always know it's Eddie Van Halen, even if he's playing Mozart. And yet, you'll say, that's Mozart wrote that. Eddie Van Halen is playing Mozart. And you, there's no doubt about it. 
And when you hear other people play particular instruments, you can say, I know that this is that person playing that instrument, even though it may have been written by somebody else. Now, Eddie Van Halen wrote some of his own music. And you say, well, that's purely, solely Eddie Van Halen. But Mozart wrote his own music and other people played it. And you can say, I know that's the Boston Philharmonic Symphony. I know it is. I can tell by the, you know, the, whoever plays the flute. I just know that guy. And that I know that it's Mozart. So you have a uniting of the two that you can always tell, the separate and distinct. The, the authorship and the authorship. The one, the instrument that's being played in the authorship. And that is exactly how the Bible works. God authored it. It says several times in the Bible that it is breathed out by God or that holy men of God are carried along by the Holy Spirit. And yet their unique style comes through very clearly. Anytime I read Paul, I know it's Paul. There's no doubt about it. That's just how the Bible works. Laban offers to make a covenant and it is going to stand as a witness. Jacob sets up a pillar, but Laban claims that he set up the pillar. What is the pillar? It is the exact same symbolism of the pillar back in Genesis 28. The pillar is Christ, no doubt about it. How could both of them have claimed that they set it up? Just as Laban said, I set this up even though the Bible clearly proclaims that Jacob set it up. Christ came from God, but he also came from man. The pillar is Christ. They were, he was set up by both. He is the God-man. He is a descendant of Adam, but he's also fully God. So this is the picture that we're getting in this particular passage. Jacob's brethren gathered stones into a heap. The heap is the Bible. There's no doubt about this. Now, I'm going to pass this out to you right now. Some of you have seen this before. This is a structure that is revealed in the Bible, and it is unmistakable. There is no doubt about it, and this was not somebody's invention. This was something that God invented before time existed and somebody found it. It's slowly been pulled out over the years. And I assure you, when I get done with this, you're going to see that what is being pictured here is what is here. Then I'll post this on YouTube as well so people can see this. There you go. Look at both sides because you can see the structure and you can see how it's... Jacob's brethren gathered these stones, as I said, and the heap is the Bible. Jacob's brethren picture those 40 or so men who received and authored the Bible. The heap was formed into a circle. As I said, the word gal implies that. The structure of the Bible makes clear, 100% clear, a pattern which forms concentric circles and which is based on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, while you're looking at that, you're going to see spokes in there. It looks like spokes on a wheel. All right. Those spokes show patterns through them that are astonishing. We could spend the rest of the year on one spoke and not even touch that one spoke. And yet, if you know how much information is in that pattern right there, how divinely inspired by God is, you would actually shudder. You would tremble at God's word. It is astonishing and it's amazingly precise. It shows intention, it shows precision, and it shows beauty. They're all represented by the gal, the heap, and the ed, the witness, the galid. The first use of two languages, Hebrew and Aramaic, in the Bible is to indicate that this witness is meant for all people, Hebrew and Gentile alike. This is the reason why for the very first time in the Bible, a non-Hebrew word is used. The witness will stand as a testimony to all time, to all people. It is a witness between God and man of the pact of peace made between the once antagonistic parties. Remember, Laban is fallen man, Jacob is the Lord. 
And this is the covenant made between the two antagonistic parties. It is the Bible. It is the Galid. It is the heap of witness. But also the Mizpah. Remember, it suddenly throws in another name at that odd division. The Watchtower. It is the place where God watches for transgressions of the covenant. And it is the place where man can watch for them as well. It proves man's obedience to God. And it proves God's faithfulness to man. Go ahead and take it to them over there. And what may seem difficult to understand here was the prohibition against taking any other wives besides Laban's daughters. All right, what is that speaking of? Again, we need to return to what they symbolize. Leah is the Old Testament law and Rachel is the New Testament grace. They are the two testaments of God's dealing with man. God has given one word with two testaments. Nothing can be added to them, such as the Book of Mormon. I'm sorry, that disqualifies you from meeting the the uh, covenant agreement. You can't add in the Quran. Once again, that disqualifies you from meeting God's requirement right here. Or the writings of Ellen G. White. If you don't know who she is, she's the one that founded Seventh-day Adventism. And they hold her writings on level with scripture. And yet God does not allow that. He has formed his witness heap and he has placed his watchtower and it is in the 66 pages, 66 books of the Bible. And so we have to treat this word very, very carefully and understand that God has put this in here for a reason, all right? But the prohibition is not just to add wives. It is also not to harm the wives that Jacob has. This is the standard. Any violation of this will be witnessed by God and it will be acted on. And this is noted time and time and time again in the Bible. Never take away, never add to the words of this book. As it says, God is a witness between you and me. When a violation is made, God does witness. He tells us in his own word. We read this in the book of John chapter five when Jesus speaks of his father. Listen to this. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. This is why Laban was able to claim that he placed the heap in the pillar between them. And Jesus came through man just as he did through God. They are both the work of God, but human agents were involved in both of them, the Bible and Jesus. The Bible is a physical, tangible word. It's not a spiritual concept without form. Jesus is a physical, tangible man, as it says in the book of John, the first chapter, the 14th verse, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory of the, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of God, the Bible, and the word of God, Jesus, are how man sees, how he understands, and how he knows God. Laban said, I will not pass beyond this heap to you. The symbolism is that the Bible is the point which we will not exceed when we come to God. It is our standard for dealing with God. In other words, we will add nothing else to it. The Bible tells us of Jesus, and Jesus reveals God the Father. Then he said, he added something in for the other part of the agreement, and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. Jesus and the Bible are the standards by which we will be judged. We have the Bible as our standard to know God. Jesus and the Bible are God's standard for judging us. You see why he added that in there? Nothing is added to them by God and they are all sufficient for his dealings with us. The peace is found in these two. 
They are where restoration and harmony between God and man are realized. Next, Laban invokes the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father, uh, Terah, to be the judge. When Jacob swears, though, he does it by the fear of his father Isaac. He did this to confirm that the God that Laban was speaking of is the same God, the only God, the living God, and he is to be feared. Even if man misunderstands God, God is still God. When we misunderstand him, it doesn't change who he is. We discovered in this chapter that all of this occurred on the Mount of Gilead. That was in last week's sermon. Gilead means the perpetual fountain. The fountain is noted in the Psalms, it's noted in Isaiah, I'm sorry, Jeremiah, and it's noted elsewhere in the Bible as God. He is the source and he is the giver of life. Psalm 36 says this, for with you is the fountain of life. In you we see light. So all this is happening on a mountain that God specifically picked for this particular thing, showing that God is the one that's revealing these things to us. God's throne is the perpetual fountain, symbolized by where they're meeting, in Gilead. And there on the mountain it says that Jacob offered a sacrifice and called his brethren to eat bread. This is the very first time in the Bible that this type of sacrifice is noted. It is called Zebach. What occurs here is recorded in the 50th Psalm. Think of Jesus, think of what just happened here. Listen to this, gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, Zebach. The sacrifice symbolizes Christ's cross and it's that which restores us to God. The bread is his body. It is the Lord's Supper, which we take to commune together with God. Finally, after the meal, it says in the morning that Laban arose kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them and departed and returned home. Laban, instead of cursing as he intended to when he came to meet up with Jacob, blessed the family. As the promise says, those who bless you, I will bless. Laban, he's a fallen man, he's a troubled man, he's a confused man. He blessed and he did not curse and he returned to his place. Man's dwelling is in the earth. And while we walk around on this round ball, we have choices to make. Will we accept the terms of the covenant, accept the sacrifice, and eat of the meal? Will we live in harmony with the Lord in his presence, in the presence of his witnessed heap, his word, and in the presence of his pillar, which is his son, our Lord Jesus Christ? The choice is ours to make. It seems that Laban did choose wisely, and I hope you will as well. Now this is the very last time that Laban is mentioned directly in the pages of the Bible. He's gonna be mentioned two more times in Genesis 46, but only indirectly in connection with the sons born to the two maidservants, Zilpah and Bilhah. To me, this guy has been one of the most curious people that we've come across so far. And I could not get my thoughts about Laban straight until I did this sermon right now. I couldn't, I, I tell you what, in the end, he is just a picture of all of us. He's a fallen son of Adam who needs to get his thoughts about God straight and his conduct towards the Lord corrected. He and his role in these many past sermons, and I mean this absolutely sincerely, he is an, has been an enigma to me. He has cost me more sleepless nights and more searching than any other person that we've accounted in the book of Genesis, and I finally know the reason why. He's the person that's searching the world for that which won't satisfy. He so desperately needs an encounter with the true God. There on the hill called the Perpetual Fountain, appears that Laban made the right choice. He accepted God and the witness 
the watchtower, the word and the son. If you've never had a personal encounter with this Lord, this great God who sent his own son to do these things for us, I want to take another two minutes and explain to you the importance of it and how it's relevant to you personally. You see, we are fallen. And anybody that denies that just needs to look at the world around us with murder, with abortion, with hatred, with enmity. And we know this, this world is not right. And we know that we are a part of this world and we have added to the hatred in this world. We've lied, we've stolen, we've been dishonest to our family and our friends and to God. And now all of that has separated us from him. And God did something so wonderfully marvelous that it just astonishes me. And it's all reflected in what we're looking at today. He stepped out of eternity in his holy, infinite state. And he united with human flesh and he walked among us, as filthy and as dirty as we are with our dishonesty and our lies and our hatred. He walked among us and he ate with sinners. He forgave prostitutes. He was a great, loving person that came here. And yet he is the Lord God Almighty at the same time. And then he fulfilled that law that you and I can never fulfill, all represented in the gospel accounts. All of this stuff we're reading about back here is fulfilled in this person here in these four books. And then he gave that precious life up as a sacrifice for every dirty thing that Charlie Garrett ever did and anybody else ever did. He gave it up. And he said, if you will simply trust in what I have done, I will take my blood and I'll cover over your sins and I will never remember them. When I look down at you, I will see the precious whiteness of my son I won't even see anything that you've done. I'll just see his righteousness. And I'll grant you that if you'll just simply by faith call on Jesus as Lord. That's all that he asks of you is to call on Jesus as Lord. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We deserve the wages we've earned, which is death. He promises us life. And so I would hope that you would make the right choice today and call on him. The Bible says today is the day of God's favor. Now is the time of salvation. We don't have tomorrow. We don't have 10 minutes from now. We don't have our next heartbeat. All we have is right now. So make the right choice and call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I am so astonished at what God has in these pictures from the Old Testament and what he's done for us. I just can't get over it. I, I, I can't get over it. Here's our closing verse for today. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. Next week, we're going to look at Genesis 32, a new chapter, verses 1 through 8. It's called, This is God's Camp. Really cool stuff there. Mahanaim, the two camps. I'll tell you this before I read you our poem and we take communion, that uh, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay, I got a poem for you based on the 13 verses that we looked at today. And we're getting closer to a Genesis poem. We're about no, two-thirds of the way through now. This is called The Witness in the Watchtower. And Laban answered, and to Jacob he said, These daughters are my daughters. These children are my children. This he pled. And this flock is my flock, you tended by the waters. All that you see is mine. But what, what can I do this day to these? My daughters are to their children so fine whom they have borne, tell me please. Now therefore come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let there be a witness between us. Yes, let us try. So Jacob took a stone and as a pillar he set it up. Then Jacob said, gather stones to each brother. And they took stones and made a heap where they could sup. 
and they ate there on the heap with one another. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me indeed. Uh, therefore, its name was called Galid, also Mizpah, because he said to Jacob, his brother, may the Lord watch between us, take heed when we are absent from one another. If you afflict my daughters, I decree, or if you take otherwise besides my daughters too, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between me and you. Then Laban said to Jacob, here is this heap you see, and here is this pillar with it also, which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness, you know, that I will not pass beyond this heap to you, not even with my arm, and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor too, and the God of their father judge between me and you. And Jacob swore by the fear of Isaac his father. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain. And he called his brethren to eat bread with one another. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the perpetual fountain. And early in the morning Laban arose to go and kissed his sons and daughters goodbye and blessed them, then departed, you know, and returned to the place maybe with a tear in his eye. The symbolism we see in this short story tells us of God, his word, his son, his glory, and that we are to hold fast to the word, not adding to it nor harming it in any way, because it is our witness from the Lord, and so we should search its mysteries each and every day. Christ is the pillar and the center of our faith. He is the one whom the Bible does proclaim, and God in his word about Jesus, it does saith, and so let us forever and ever exalt his glorious name. Oh, beautiful and majestic, awesome Lord, thank you for your wondrous, precious word. Let us cherish it and never depart from what it does say until the time when you return for us some glorious day. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, I personally can't get beyond your word. I, I, I'm astonished every time I look into it and I learn something new. Things that were so obvious just a second before were hidden from my eyes. And how glorious you are. If you gave us this word, how much more glorious are you? What a great God you are. Thank you for your word. Thank you for having blessed us today with this nice weather and for the crickets which are chirping and, and just everything that you've done. You're just perfect. Everything that you do for us is so well suited to us. We have trials and we find out that they were just what we needed at the time. And we have joy and we find out that that joy spread to somebody else and made them happy as well. Everything happens so perfectly because you're a great God and you've ordained it to be so. Help us to live this life in your presence, honoring you, bringing glory to you, bringing honor to you, and uh, help us just to be a witness to your faithfulness to us and to tell others about you and to share your goodness all the days of our life. And please bless each person here and anybody that's watching on YouTube. Give them soundness of mind and peace in their heart and help them through their trials and troubles and afflictions. All glory we give to you in the name of your wondrous, beautiful, precious Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.